y'all. You are listening to the Palsies with Palsies podcast. Uh, I am the Palsy Rebecca Mitz. I am the Palsy Justin Hancock. And we have a special guest. Lindsay the Interloper. Well, <laughs> 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 oh, it, it drew up for me as well, but I saw it coming. But hey, we'll take it. Friends, this is a conversation we've wanted to have for quite some time. Lindsay is a brilliant human resource guru and, uh, you know, human strategy uh, expert and grief expert and just is so qualified. I don't know how you landed on this podcast, Lindsay. I'll (laughs) tell you the truth. But uh, we're so excited to have you. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for, thanks for being brave and uh, inviting me into, into your special place. I, I'm a huge fan of your podcast, and I've told lots of people about it. Um, but as you know, I'm a little bit low tech right now, so I don't get to listen to all of them. And, um, but truly, and, and you know, um, disingenuous compliments are not something that I do. And I am, I am gracious, but I do not make stuff up. So uh, when I say that this is uh, easily world-class, um, you know, top five kind of podcast uh, in my world, like it's, it's a real thing. Well, thank you. That is high praise. Thank you so much. And not because you invited me on to it. <laughs> yeah, this is the real thing. This is very expert curation y'all are doing over here. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, um, well, and just to let our audience know, I've got, there's some slight lag issues and you know um human energy issues and technology issues so we're gonna do our best but um just so y'all know when we did a pre-meeting on this episode uh two weeks ago this could be a nine-hour experience (laughs) we kind of should have recorded that call probably yeah, that was my lesson learned that day. <laughs> like, oh, that was great. <laughs> um, there's so much good stuff to get to with Lindsay, um, and we will have her back for what will eventually be part of a series or a series. Lindsay, one of the things that I, you and I have been friends for a while now and one of the things I find uh, most interesting in reflecting on with you consistently is uh, your experience with grief and helping people um, understand how grief can play a role in a healthy uh, life and I think that's incredibly timely for the times we find ourselves in so I think that's where I would like to kind of explore today does that sound okay to you sounds okay to me uh you know as usual you you take other people's ideas and then make them sound more brilliant than when the person came up with them and you have (laughs) you have struck again (laughs) so um I, I appreciate you shining that idea up for me. And uh, yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it in quite that way, but I, I, that is the elegant, beautiful version of how I orient and what I do, I suppose. 
Justin's good at that. He really is. You're, you, you both really are. Um, it's amazing. Um, it's like a superpower. So yeah, where, where would you like to start? You know that I have, um, you know, I have a lot of headspace in sort of personal grief, health grief, um, business, um, and sort of where that intersects with, uh, where managing grief intersects with business or, you know, is there anywhere we want to start? Um, when people say grief, and I, I think you mentioned this on the phone call that we should have recorded, um, that it's often associated with death, like the loss of a person. And that is most people at some point in your life, just about everybody is going to experience that probably. Um, but in your experience, grief is there's so many other types and experiences of grief that's not necessarily associated with death. And that's kind of where I wanted to start of where you have seen and experienced and are aware of other types of grief that doesn't, is not just death. Yeah, sure. Well, so one of the things that I have thought was really interesting is that as a person who has experienced almost every grief that we could shake a stick at, um, but has had relative, like in my grief pie chart, personally, um, losing another person mortally is low, you know, is a very small slice of pie, would not be a satisfying slice of pie. And um, so I I have lost people via death, but, but I've lost people way more often in other ways, and in a ton of ways. And I think the um, the rampant, uh, what I'm going to call the attachment disorder that is the United States of America um, in 2021, um, and not to the fault of COVID, but was happening before that, um, is a space that causes a lot of grief that people don't end up dealing with. And then we call it, we call their, their behavior of dealing with it cancel culture. We call, you know, we find other mm-hmm. names for it and, and more phenomenological ways to, to deal with it in, in the sociological or popular um, discourse. And, um, but, but something that I have thought was interesting and difficult um, in the past several years in coming um, back to um, the city that I more or less grew up in um, in, in a different racial grief moment than when I left, um, in a more open racial grief moment than when I left. Um, part of, uh, you know, part of my grief is, is very racially oriented because I grew up a third culture kid. Um, part of, uh, my grief is very health oriented because I grew up thinking I was not disabled and then discovering that I am, um, and then becoming more, more visibly, codably disabled. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also like the ticket, I, I, I feel like you have to have uh, that a dead body is your ticket to grief support in the United States. And, and that sounds crass because it is, and it doesn't sound crass because I'm being hyperbolic. It sounds crass because it's a terrible way to treat human beings who are still alive. And we, we are all grieving something all the time. And, and there's no way to not be grieving all the time because physiologically and cognitively, we're always producing and atrophying synapses and, and the production of synapses and the, and the forced atrophying of synapses is, is the pain of that and the chemistry that goes on when those things are happening, which are happening all the time, right? Um, as long as we are drawing breath, those things are stresses on the body and they produce chemicals that, that we experience in large enough quantities of those chemicals as grief or as pain. 
And so, so when I've tried to get grief support, um, early on in my life, I was involved in a divorce and I, you know, wanted to make sure I didn't, you know, do something stupid 20 years later because of it. And so I went to a grief support for divorce and that was fine and useful. Um, but, but in general, there's not even a lot of divorce support, even though half of everybody gets divorced in the United States. And, um, and there's definitely not specific, uh, or, or I'm sorry, there's not generalized grief support. We're so focused on that you have to have lost someone to death that the last grief support I, I went to, um, it was a couple of years ago, or maybe right, actually right when COVID was hitting. So it wasn't quite two years ago now. I applied um, using my grandfather's death as my ticket in. Mm-hmm. And that's not what I was grieving over. And he didn't even die recently. He had died, you know, two years before that. And, but I had to use that and, and to have to use the sanctity of his life as a way to get any kind of group support was wrong. And, but it was the only way that I could get some support. I also think though, that there is um, a, a way in which we, we create and we, neuronormativize the kinds of grief that we're willing to call grief, that we're willing to even acknowledge and talk about in the culture. And as we move toward a conversation uh, about neurodivergency and, and the ways that people experience the world being deeply different one from the next, um, I could be on, on a certain spectrum of cognition that would find that a rock was what I was emotionally attached to and having a relationship with. Now we're not, you know, the scope of this conversation is not to talk about whether a rock is sentient or not. Um, that's a hard conversation to have in the West at all. But, but, there, but there is that, if the relationship is there in someone's perception, then the relationship is there. If someone's animal passes or someone, if someone's computer dies, but they are, you know, big in coding and they, um, or if their brain works in such a way that they have a better relationship with their computer than with human beings, that's mm-hmm. the grief, right? Mm-hmm. Like all yeah. of those things are equally real. And just because I function better interacting with human beings than animals, um, doesn't mean I didn't stop talking to everybody for five months when my dog died, right? <laughs> Either. So, so creating space. And I think, and I think merging the conversations between neurodiversity and, and divergency and, um, and the grief conversation is really, they, they inform one another and they're important to put together, I think, at this juncture, because otherwise we just never get past the, oh, well, if somebody didn't die and I'm not calling you. Yeah. Boy, there is, there is so much there to um, react to. I'm curious as to when did you first get an inkling that the the neurodiversity and neurodivergent um, conversation was so inextricably linked to this larger grief conversation? When did that first start to strike for you or is it still striking? You know, probably, probably around three years ago. And, and the more barriers I come up against, I mean, I don't think there's anyone that would argue who knows anything about my life would argue that, 
that there's not major trauma and grief going on almost all the time. And so just because of my health and because of certain barriers that are in place, um, there, there's just really, uh, there's a lot of it. There's just a lot of it. And, and to say that there's not, or that it's during a certain period would be to be, you know, not looking very hard, you know? So, um, so I think that as I continue to walk through that, um, there's no way to not notice that there, you know, if you're looking for support and you're a proactive person and you feel like support is helpful. And I am as a person who lives alone is, is a fair amount of the time shut in, um, and does not have, um, and, you know, active family relationships, active primary relationships, you know, I, I'm an introverted person or else I couldn't live this life at all. But, um, you know, when you do the math on how much time a person uh, needs just in, you know, a mammal who is a pack animal needs with other humans in a non-transactive interaction, um, you know, it's 30 days, let's call it, you know, a little over, you know, kind of one to two hours to call it a little over three hours a day that you would need with another human being. That's 50 to 100 hours a month. Well, I get in a good month, five to 10. So I'm always 90% low, um, which means there's never a time when my chemistry re-ups at the appropriate level, um, because to re-up properly, we have to have the human interaction that, you know, our bodies are set up for just as mammals. So, so as I go through that process, um, number one, that in itself, me knowing that I am introverted, um, even if we just did real basic neurodivergency conversation, the introversion and the extroversion um, conversation, you know, are, are valuable, right? I, I have a family member who's on spectrum um, very, very noticeably. I know a lot of people who are probably on spectrum. I, you know, I can recognize little pieces of myself that are that are within that, that we currently, you know, are calling on spectrum at some point, I would love for us to just say, oh yeah, we all are who we are. Um, but, but there are ways that I, I can watch, um, people who are in different cognitive spaces than I am, um, react differently, grieve differently, um, run away from feeling bad different ways than I would. Um, mm. and I think, I think all of that is really interesting. I mean, both of my parents are teachers. I grew up in, um, in a lot of different, um, academic styles and with that sort of being the center of my household, um, and in a lot of alternative, um, styles being nearby, I've not always been deeply entrenched in them, but knowing that they existed, knowing that there are different ways to educate and so forth. But I also think that, um, that as a person who, has both grown up in spaces where people are informally educated um, rather than formally educated, but being from a very um, formally educated family myself and, and having to tear apart the, um, the differences between somebody being smart and somebody being literate, which are deeply different things. Um, and the fact that everybody is the smartest at something and everybody is the dumbest at something just like everybody's disabled we you know we wouldn't have medicine chess if everybody weren't disabled so um pharma wouldn't be in charge of so much of the world if we weren't all disabled so um given all of those varieties that that coexist it seems impossible for me to not think about what you're talking about like all the time 
Like I just see it mm. in everything. Um, what I often see is there is um, an enormity of addiction to caucusing. You tend to be able to find a group and as well you should if your child dies, which has got to be the worst horror ever. And, uh, and there, there are groups for that. Um, they are not necessarily well facilitated or well boundaried, but they do exist. And then there are groups for people who have lost somebody, anybody, right, um, to death. Um, but we're so addicted to that caucusing that we forget that we are being really exclusivist when we stick to that as the only game plan. What I would love to see and, and what I would love to, you know, put together myself, frankly, is to, um, is to have something that, that is a network of general grief. You know, and if your grief is, I really wanted a Coke and they gave me Dr. Pepper and it was right after I got screamed at my, by my boss and it was just the last straw and I can't handle it, then that is what it is. Like, it's the same response in the body. It's the same toxification in the body. It's the same feeling. Um, it doesn't mean you'll, you'll have that feeling tomorrow necessarily, but for us, things are real, makes the difference between someone being able to move through that and process it or... Um, or it becoming a microaggression to their spirit. So I think all of those things are, are important. And then from the general grief support, from us saying, okay, in this space, we're not gonna judge what people are coming into this space for. We're just gonna be together and know that this is a safe space for each one of us to be who we need to be. And then if we find that five people in here lost a mother, which is a very particular experience, then, it, you know, to death, then maybe we create a caucus group if we feel that we want that particular conversation. If we find that three of us are divorced and, and four more of us are estranged from a family member, those are, you know, those are deep griefs that get put to the side in our society a lot, even though I can't think of anyone I've ever met who isn't estranged from somebody. But we don't talk about it. And there's a lot of shame around it about like finding a way to make Christmas work, right? <laughs> so um, those kinds of things, you know, you can caucus from there, but to caucus without, and this is what we've done in society. And this is what we've done in, in a white supremacist setting. Um, we've said the caucus is more important. We've said the, white, the whiter skin is more important. And so we're going to start there and normalize there and everything else is decentered even though everything else is most of everything. And we do the same thing in a grief support setting. We, we normalize one thing instead of the larger human experience of grief. And, and I do think it's based in, you know, in a patriarchal, colonialistic, imperialistic um, type of orientation um, that if we're ever gonna move through, we have to stop doing that, which is why it's great to see little by little, not fast enough, but, um, but more culturally competent, um, uh, therapy and more culturally competent public conversations around race trauma and what that is, um, because we, we need that. And that's part of, of peeling back those layers of, of white supremacy. And so is that denormalizing de caucusing before, you know, before we need to caucus. Yeah. Even when you lose, even if in losing someone in death, depending on your relationship to that person, the grief is different. Totally. I know that I've talked to somebody who they had a very strange relationship with their father their whole life, you know, and 
And then when they died, they realized they didn't think they were going to grieve really. But then there was a grief, but it wasn't, it's not the same as when like I lost my dad, which was, you know, an 18 year old losing a father that they loved and had a relationship with, but it was a, oh, I'm never going to recover that, that there, you know, and that that grief needs to be addressed and looked at differently. Even, even though we both lost a father, that grief is not the same. And what we're dealing with is different. Um, And then, yeah, as you're talking about even like racial grief of that, that gets really broadly ignored in the wider culture as a whole in that, um, like the loss of family history for black people in America, there's just like a, has no clue for many families of where they actually, their ancestors came from Um, and like names and spaces and that gets so ignored like in classrooms (laughs) when you have like family projects and stuff. There's all these different types of grief even nuanced within the death, (laughs) death grief that doesn't get addressed. I love the idea of like, let's do generalized grief. And then when we find everybody's thing, we can (laughs) talk about those in separate groups, but then understanding that there's a broad grief that so many people deal with and little things like, yeah, like losing like when my favorite chain restaurant closed and that was my comfort food I remember standing in front of it and like almost crying and being like who do I tell that I've lost my I've lost my favorite chicken place (laughs) like (laughs) um you know there's stuff like that that is like it is a grief I still think about it because I'm like that chicken was so good um (laughs) but that was emotional for me and it's kind of funny I guess in this feeling of like, I know that I'm not, I'm not going to be down and out for, you know, whatever amount of time, but it was still like, oh, now I'm going to have to find a new place to get food when I'm feeling upset, or I'm going to have to, you know, go somewhere else to get it or whatever. So. Well, and I just think that if we as a society could, uh, I'm going to think very carefully of how to say this because I don't want to say it incorrectly or glibly, but I think acknowledging that grief is much more uh, present in our lives would give us so much more mental and emotional room to breathe. Yeah. Um, I, and this is very timely because we happen to be Potty training our adorable uh, two and two and nine month old son, two years and nine month old son Angus, and um, I did not comprehend the grief that that would be because I am unable to help mm. and really physically engage in that process. Mm. I told my wife. Uh, Last night, I went and got this dessert on date night because she had been with the boy all day, and it's much more intense than even it usually is because we're going without. 
diapers for a substantial part of the day and doing the potty training thing. And she was like, do you want me to run and get dessert? And I was like, of course not. I can't help potty train. I can do dishes and I can get dessert. That's what I can do. Um, but over the last four or five days since we've been, been in this process at Ernest, there have been moments of real anger and frustration and bafflement because she's not able to just hand him to me and say, I need a break for an hour because she's got to be right in there. And that's a part of fatherhood for me right now that's really being put on pause mm-hmm. and that that is a grief like that moment of that is a loss that will return in a different form but it is a loss and it is a grief right now so I've really had to stop and let that breathe for a moment and it's just so it's good in this space to get the room to acknowledge that for what it is but it's so um i just find it so striking how much healthier we would be if we all knew that we have the capability to acknowledge our grief 24 7 you know i'm very struck by that boy that's so good I'm sorry that you're in that, by the way. I, I, I feel like I would, I would feel a similar way. And even if I didn't, it doesn't really matter. I'm sorry. Thank you. And as I said, it's going to come back, but it will come back differently. And it's leaving that room to breathe. But in this space that is, you know, even though we're in the middle of a show and we do this for entertainment and information uh you know resourcing uh you know purposes it's good to know that i'm having a chance for a breakthrough on on air which is somewhat different so i think then that like so for justin and Lindsay, what how do you recognize what is grief I suppose like in moments that I think for you Lindsay obviously you have really learned to tap into that um but for you Justin did you just now as we were talking realize oh this is a grief in the midst of this conversation we were having is that when you realized it you know I think that's a great catch Rebecca uh uh, and good on you there but (laughs) I think there were moments and there have been moments when I have the last couple of days reflected on, you know, him growing up, the the particular strain this is on my life and in our lives right now. So I've acknowledged the moments of grief, but yes, in a, because it's not right on top of me and we're talking about this subject, it really could be a full force about five minutes ago. That <laughs> I, this is a process of grief. So yeah. uh, 
I probably had flashes in knowing that, but yeah, I I I would say it settled in about five minutes ago. So I'm for you, so, I'm sorry. Go go ahead. I was having another thought. Oh, I was just gonna reiterate to you that kind of same question of for you. When do you recognize? How do you recognize for you what is grief versus maybe another feeling when something is happening or going on? Gosh, that's such a good question. I I think that there's not another feeling almost. Mm. Um, I think it is the feeling. Um, and, you know, there's, let's call it joy on the one side of things, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, but then like anything that isn't joy, I think might be grief. Mm. Um, I grew up in one spiritual tradition and I've, I've been you know, engaged and incarnated in, in a number of traditions, I, I think would be fair to say. And um, for me, you know, I, I know it's very common, certainly in imperialistic settings, um, to say that we learn best from stress and from, um, uh, you know, from negative yeah. types yeah. of feelings. Um, yeah. That has not been my experience. And I do know people who would say, yes, I learn best under the gun or I learn best when something bad happens to me. Um, I, I don't know if that's a journey issue, if it's a karmic issue. I don't know if it's a maturity issue. Um, but for me, that's never, ever been true. And I also don't have the luxury of a really strong physical constitution. And if you have the luxury of a really strong physical constitution and you weren't malnourished as a kid and you have you know, some infrastructure to run that energy through, then, then it might be a really different world, right? Than right, what I am right. living in. But yeah, I think for me, um, it is, and I'll have to think about it some more, uh, but I to make sure this is true, but I, I think there's, I think joy is the feeling that, um, you know, if I get really metaphysical for a second, I think that's the feeling <laughs> that's like in flow or, you know, whatever it is, it's like a, a deep contentment mm-hmm. or whatever the label is that somebody wants to use. Um, I, I think that's the game and that everything else means that I'm not there right now. And there's something interruptive happening. Um, and, and all of that is grief. Anything that's not joy means there's some kind of grief going on. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that that phrase that Justin used a little while ago, like that, like the loss that returns in a different form. I, I think you meant it as like, I'll get it back, you know, like I'll regain some of this, what I feel like is lost ground. But I think it's such an interesting phrase because I think it could mean either one that, you know, if we, if we don't call the grief what it is, it comes back in a different form. You know, if we, if we get, we have a personal relationship that goes sour, the, you know, it, it comes up in something else if you don't get to process it, right? And 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 I love your example, Rebecca, of the of losing a restaurant, right? I think losing a business relationship is deep, real grief, and not just in like enterprise, you know, design that I do, but also in these these many relationships that we don't admit exist, that we try to act like are transactional, but we are not transactional creatures. We are mammals. That's it. We don't have a lot else to offer and we are, we are trying to have some kind of, of, you know, homeostatic 
relationship with our ecosystem. And when we don't admit that and we don't get on board with that and act like my, my, um, my okayness depends on you being okay and your okayness depends on me being okay, not in a codependent way, but in an Ubuntu way, um, then, then we don't acknowledge that, you know, the restaurant is, is a living, breathe, breathing being that's providing therapy for me. Um, and, and also just physiologically, the chemicals that you got from that restaurant were some kind of medication, yeah. right? You know, food or whatever we're, we're taking in is, is that. And if you find yourself going to the same place over and over or getting that same sandwich over and over, like there's something that, that, you know, you're feeling, if you're feeling in chaos or in flux, then you know something that's going to be constant if you get that sandwich, right? You know what you're going to feel like for the next 45 minutes or something, right? And there's some kind of stability there. Um, so I, yeah, I think, I think when we don't acknowledge those many relationships um, and, and we're, we're great at ignoring those in, in a capitalist society, um, but they're real. And that's why we feel um, disengaged or microaggressed at or traumatized at work when we are not cared for and when we are not allowed to be relational, um, you know, in, in ways that just acknowledge each other's uh, humanity would be one way to put it, but mammalianness uh, would be a more accurate way to put it, probably. You have taught me over the course of our relationship so much about framing language and entering conversations uh, aware of you know the other person in the space so before i before i do this i am well aware of the societal impulse to check everybody's credentials at the door so as i do this i want you to know that's not really what i'm after i just want to give our audience um sort of a sense of you, you're what you've said over the last 30 ish minutes or so is so brilliant. Um, but you didn't just like come up with this on a Saturday evening lark, you've been in this sort of space, uh, and human capacity and resource space for quite a while. So, uh, can you tell us what you do if that makes sense? Yeah, sure. Um, so de depending on the audience or the people that I'm working with, uh, there are several uh, labels or identifiers that seem to make the most sense at the time. Uh, sometimes that is process improvement. Sometimes it is um, process anthropology. Um, sometimes it is uh, anti-racism and equity embedment for enterprises. Uh, sometimes we call it uh, human capital management. Um, it's broad because people are just everywhere. If you haven't noticed, you know, so <laughs> um, we just seem to be in all all kinds of things. Um, but I'm a cultural anthropologist by wiring and training and and background, and um, I, I grew up in a very heavily multicultural uh, and cross cultural setting, mo mostly in the United States, but it very much um, sort of in a in a missionary type of family. Um, so I, I was telling a colleague a couple of days ago, I said, you know, it's, um, it can be 
uh, tricky to know which pieces of myself people need to know about uh, at times because uh, I can go into a room and be the the white lady in the suit with the MBA from the top supply chain school um, and talk to you all day about continuous improvement and and be on the down low uh, reconfiguring your process in an anti-racist way and you'll never know I did it. Or I can be out of the closet with it. And um, it's, it's hard as people are getting to understand in, in the popular discourse that, oh, wait, like, yeah, let's absolutely spend money on anti-racism enterprise reconstruction. Now that we've had that idea, we got to find some people who can do it. Well, there's not many people that understand that there are people who do it, you know, so... Um, I've been doing it for a long time. Um, I'm, I'm not a person of color. Um, I'm a person of a lot of other marginal, uh, margin identities, um, but not a person who on days that I can walk, can walk down the street and, and be treated like a person of color because I'm not a person of color. Although a, a friend of mine has, has notably and insightfully said, uh, who is a person of color. Wow, Lindsay when I hear your stories of how they treat you in a wheelchair, I just feel like they can't even see that you're white. And, um, th and that is good information from a friend. But um, so, so those are kind of some of my orientations. But, you know, I'm a pastor's kid. I'm a third culture kid. I was, uh, you know, on the, on the most segregated hour of the week on Sunday morning. Uh, you know, most of my upbringing was in churches that were um, that were entirely uh, non-white, um, and I, but I, I identify most deeply as an anthropologist. And when you're doing corporate work or or um, global or regional private sector work, there's there's always the stakeholder experience question. And so understanding each stakeholder's cultures, everybody has so many cultures that are overlapping. Mm -hmm. Um, is what I feel like my calling is. Sometimes people call that customer experience. Sometimes people call it voice of customer, voice of stakeholder. Um, in the nonprofit space, we call it um, asset-based community development. I hope we're getting away from the word asset now that we have had uh, BLM um, uh, correct a lot of language in the past year and a half for folks, um, because usually when we're using the term asset-based community development, what is meant is is human human experience based, um, and we've used the word asset for too long. And usually, those are in communities of color, so it's really incredibly inappropriate in America to be using that term. Um, but so there's a lot of faces to it. Um, but those are some of them. Thank you. So you've talked a little bit about, I mean, even just now, language. Um, what language changes in kind of everyday? dialect or anything that might help us open up to the ideas of grief as, you know, multiple kinds of grief, how we deal with it. What are some languages or words, whatever, however you might say it, that might, that hinder the way we talk about grief and maybe words and phrases and how we go about it that would open that up and make it more accessible, more easy to talk about or less focused on one kind of grief? Um, that, that's such a good thing to think about. And it's such a, such a long, 
thing to think about, right? But uh, it makes me think um, partly of a conversation I had with a colleague a few weeks ago, and she um, did a TEDx talk a while back around where, where her ultimate suggestion to people after sharing her um, parts of her grief story um, were, and she actually did it at the company, which was fairly brave, uh, but um, but she said, you know, what would happen if in your signature line on your on your email, you know, there were instead of your strength finders top five, you know, qualities about how you function in the world, you know, what if you had have mom issues, used to have bulimia, you know, like which was her her mm-hmm. she was telling a story about bulimia, and um, she said, what would that be like, you know, if we came to one another knowing like, okay, as a as a person who also presents female. Um, you know, I know that this person um, has some tenderness around female relationships and particularly female relationships that might um, be her elders. And like, how does that change the way that I interface with her, right? Um, And how do I show up for her? And how do I create more space instead of like barreling in with my ask since we only have 25 minutes to get the ask done, right? Um, So I think think there's space for that. And I think... um, uh, Marianne Williamson, who uh, a lot of people outside of California know way, way too little about, but uh, <laughs> uh, but who is really brilliant, entirely informally educated, um, but more formally educated um, than most formally educated people that I know, or, or has, has self-educated in more formal ways than anybody I've ever encountered, um, you know, has also talked about... Um, a lot of grief elements and she, you know, she's, uh, comes from, uh, uh, a Jewish background and, and also has done a lot of, uh, metaphysical study and tons and tons of different kinds of, of psychological, um, research and, and reading over the years. And, um, and she has some really interesting insights into that too. And one of them it, from her, from her AIDS relief days in the eighties when she was deep, deep, you know, in hospitals for years and years, taking care of AIDS patients during the, the worst of that epidemic in the United States. Um, her experience has been as an, as an advocate and an activist that um, it feels really bad staying home and it feels really different not staying home. Um, now as a, as a person with limited um, mobility, um, you feel the grief of that just hearing it said, you know, because <laughs> um, I'm like, I know it would feel better to go to that march, you know, that would be great. Um, so I think that's part of it. And using language itself, you know, one thing we can do is stop using the term politically correct. Um, just take it out of the lexicon. And I think it was important when it showed up and it was an important step into what we are now experiencing, but to keep using it. Um, we, we almost always use it um, to the detriment of space. Um, we almost always use it to create an, an out group. And the out group is the politically correct group. And it doesn't matter where we are in the political spectrum. We always think that being politically correct is wrong. And, <laughs> um, and, that, and that they're just being politically correct, but I'm being genuine, right? And it's definitely a litmus test. It's sort of like when people use the term drama. You know, you, you have drama but I have valid issues, right? So, but there's not space when I call your stuff drama. So that's another way that we create an out group that we don't need to, and we marginalize one another's pain. 
Um, I think within um, organizational spaces, and even because we're such a, an economically tied country, um, even in our personal lives, we, we, we let this bleed into our personal um, lexicon, I think. Um, but when we use words that kind of shine up or, or de-feelingize what we're feeling, then we lose an opportunity. And, and I work a lot in change management. That's another label that you know I wear a, a lot. And um, change management to, to just sort of um, give you the short version is if psychology and anthropology like got together and had a baby, um, it would probably be a love child. And, um, and then put a suit on the baby, um, they would call it change management. It would be a little suited. And, um, but the, and so it would have the DNA of psychological insight and of cultural anthropology insight, but it would use different words. Now, the problem with using different words, there's value for a time to using different words because it allows those of us who know both spaces or who are organizational healers to pull in really important indigenous wisdom, really important paradigms that are outside yeah, you know, your static white supremacist um, constructs that you're going into and use something that's more banal sounding and that that's workable. But that's that's a transition period. Right. And once you get past that and once you get in the door, it becomes important if we keep saying, I mean, think if you went to like marriage counseling and and you asked, you know, your wives, well, uh, you know, can you tell me how you're feeling that I accidentally ran over the dog the other day? And, and she said, I'm feeling some resistance. Well, that's not what she's feeling. Like she, <laughs> she, she's feeling enraged or she's feeling like she wants to get divorced or she's feeling like she wished she would have gotten her another dog the next day or she's wishing that you would, you know, never talk to her about getting another dog or she's, you know, whatever she's feeling. It's, it's much more visceral. It's much more primal. And, and when we, when we don't, um, when we don't create space for, for us to be who we are, which is mammals, which is primal, which is feral creatures, then, then, then our feralness comes out other ways, right? Then we scream at each other for like turning the remote or something, right? Um, and then that's no good. And <laughs> so, and not justified. Um, so, so I think those are kinds of language, something that I've been really exploring that I'm exploring in, in the current organization that I'm with, within our, um, within our disability part of our organization and within the, the grief focus that we do within the organization as well is, is how can I marry these two spaces? Like we're talking about grief often as though it's like kind of a separate thing from work. What if we, what if we admitted that when, when we get reorged even if we don't lose our job, there's grief there. Or what if when somebody retires, there's grief there? What if we call it sad? How would that change mm. how we operate business? How would it change if we operated mm. that way at church? Um, how would it change if we just said the damn word more? That like, it's, you know, it's okay to be sad that your computer keeps doing that, that thing, that blue screen of death thing. Um, it's okay to be sad that your restaurant closed. It's okay to be sad that you can't find your sock or that your head's hurting or whatever. And it might be the same pain that, you know, even in like death-based grief support, 
it is said over and over, even though it's not super supported. Oh yeah. Like you might start crying when you see a billboard five years from now, you know, like that's a real thing and that's legitimate, but it's legitimate all the time. It doesn't have to be legitimate because somebody in your life died. Maybe you never had anybody who was nice enough to you that they stayed around long enough for you to know when they died. That's my situation most of the time. Mm-hmm. I'll never know when most of the people I loved died. Wow. I'm just, I'm almost to the point I want to be um, cognizant of everyone's energy level and with the sort of the time parameters we set before we went on air. But I'm, Lindsay, I'm almost to the point where if I ask another question, I feel like it's going to legitimately add another. 35 delicious minutes to our conversation. So it's, uh, yeah, which is again, as a podcaster and an information, you know, someone who loves to play in new mental and emotional territory, it's a good problem to have. So thank you very much. Um, but I guess I, as a way of, um, getting putting a bow on this one with the anticipation that this will not be a one-off conversation um is there anything that you don't want to leave unsaid um before we wrap this one up today with the uh, knowledge that we will of course have you back as soon as possible no, you know, my, uh, my throat feels better from us talking, you know, I've been struggling with my throat. It's like a whole new, a whole new side of COVID that I haven't had before a lot. And, um, it's, it's all about the throat this week. So, um, but, but thanks to the dopamine that I got from this conversation, um, my body feels better at the moment. So I'm grateful for the entertainment and, uh, <laughs> um, and just the depth uh, y'all are you know y'all always ask the best questions on the block and uh, have the best thoughts and I've I've taken some notes um so uh, so that I can sit with them some more but um no oh I I feel I feel really thankful to be you know a part of y'all's brains and hearts so thanks for having me well I'm so glad you got to come on and also a sign that talking about grief can bring dopamine <laughs> it's <laughs> You know, like I do feel that way. I am, uh, that's a side, that's a side obsession I have. I get, I'm like super like into talking about grief. So yeah, I get excited when I'm like, oh, we're talking about grief. Like, (laughs) you know, um, yeah. So I, I agree. It's when you're passionate about it and it's, you're not afraid to kind of get honest and kind of dig into it. I think conversations like these are needed and can be really exciting and fun and shoot, you know, shoot shockwaves through your brain and your heart when you're talking about it. Cause it just makes you think about so many different things. So I'm very glad you got to come on and I'm gl- hope, looking forward to when we can do it again. Thanks. Yeah. We can nerd out about dopamine and grief any, <laughs> anytime. <laughs> <laughs> I am always up for that and um, like Rebecca said geez this has just been so my we talked about synapses earlier in the conversation I feel like it's just 
probably the most alive that all of my synapses have been all week. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, I guess I will just um, sort of lead us out the way that we always like to uh, by saying thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for coming along on this ride with us. And um, go out there, put put a little bit of joy and uh, good energy into the world. Go do some good. And, um, yeah, come back for another great conversation next week. Rebecca? Um, you can find us on Google Podcasts. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you can get podcasts. We are looking forward to our interloper returning and for many more interlopers to come into our space. So um, <laughs> you can't see it, but Lindsay just did a very cute, like little antelopes or something like hopping across the street. It's very cute. I'm so sad that no one else will get to see that. But um, <laughs> no one gets to see most of the neat things that happens that I do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, what Lindy doesn't know is she just made the first Palsies with Palsy t-shirt. That and that's what that is. Maybe we can do like a 3D one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, absolutely. I'm here for that. And then open a roller skating rink. That'll be the next one. We'll put Justin <laughs> <Yeah>. on skates. <laughs> just off. All right. Yeah. <laughs> It's our whole special wait, wait. conga line. We'll have like a like a manual wheelchair and an automatic wheelchair and like and like you slackers that don't use wheelchairs at all. And just golden girl. You style. will be keeping us up because I don't know how to skate. So I'll just be clutching. Justin will have to be in front because he's got the he's got the automatic one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Justin. Yeah. All on your engine now. Okay. Well sorry to completely derail. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, where, are we in the full, where are we going? <laughs> <laughs> With the full knowledge that I will now never get this back, um, <laughs> on, right, uh, I'll just simply say that you guys just described the entirety of my rolling experience. <laughs> people grabbing onto me going, oh crap, Justin, just don't move too fast. You're... So yeah, I'm happy to do that again. Uh, take us home, Rebecca. Uh, well, I am uh, still the palsy Rebecca Mitz. And I'm still the palsy Justin Hancock. Thanks, guys. And Lindsay, our interloper. Bye. We'll be here back soon. Bye, guys. Bye.